Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather in this place for the purpose of your praise. As we come to a passage in Isaiah 43, which was written hundreds of years before Christ Jesus arrived on the scene, it prophetically helps us to look back at your former grace while also looking ahead to your future grace, which was indeed seen in the flesh when he arrived on that Christmas morning. And yet now we live in light of that first advent in humility, and we long for his second advent in glory. And so amidst the fears, the hardships, the anxieties and adversities of our lives, I pray, Lord, that you would give us this crystal clear focus on who he is, what he has done, and what he promises to do. So, Lord, I know that After a holiday week, many of us enter today both tired, excited, potentially anxious. Whatever we bring into this room, I pray we bring it to you. And I pray that you'd open our eyes and our ears to behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, we love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So in about 12 hours from now, one of the brightest man-made lights on all the earth, will descend in Times Square, New York City, to inaugurate the new year. And I don't know about you, but this behemoth of a bright beacon of hope, the Times Square, the ball drop on Times Square, at Times Square on New Year's Eve, is something that many people look forward to, because in many ways, it's a microcosm, it's a picture of the anticipation of a good year to come. And this big, huge ball is something that's impossible to miss. It's 12 feet. I had to look this up. No one should know this off the top of their head. It's 12 feet in diameter. It weighs 12,000 pounds. And it's illuminated by 32,000 LEDs. Unmissable would be an understatement. And yet when we turn to a passage like we're in today, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 to 7, The Lord is dropping into not just our metaphorical laps, but into our hearts, a bright beacon of hope for the future. And Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 to 7, has more worship-inducing wattage than even that light over Times Square this evening. And so this morning, the big idea that we're going to unpack in these short seven verses is essentially this. Have no fear as we enter the new year. Have no fear as we enter the new year. And what Isaiah is doing for the people then in, uh, who are exiting exile and anticipating another exile, people who are racked with fear, and what he's doing prophetically for us as well is turning our eyes away from the mirror, stop looking at ourselves, and turn them towards the altar where God who is sovereign reigns and soon will return. So let's have no fear as we enter the new year by setting our eyes on the Lord. And here's what Isaiah wants us to see. In verse 1 and 2, he wants us to see God's action. Who, what does he do? And then in verse 3 to 4, he wants us to see God's affection. Who is he? And then finally, in verse 5 to 7, he wants us to hear God's assurance. What kind of hope do we have? Church, I know we don't have the screen usually that we do at Metanoia, so say it with me. First, we want to see God's action. Then we want to see here God's affection. And then we want to hear about God's assurance. Let's start with his action. Verse 1 and 2. And even before we get to verse 1 and 2, if you have your Bibles, look at chapter 42, verse 18. 
This is the bad news before the good news. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 18, is the darkness before the light. Hear you, deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Isaiah 43 is indeed a beacon of light and wonderful hope, but Isaiah 42 is this dark, bleak backdrop. Um, This evening, one of the reasons that huge 32,000 LED light will look so bright is because it's contrasted against the dark back sky, black sky. For you and I, for us to appreciate what Isaiah is saying in verse 43, we have to appreciate the dark difficulty and depravity that Israel's coming out of. See, Isaiah 42 it, it is this chapter of what God had designed his people to be like and do as a servant, as a messenger, to bring the light of the world into a dark, difficult situation. And yet they failed to do that. They did not see who God was. They did not hear with their ears. And so blind and deaf is said four different times to repeat not just this physical spiritual or this physical blindness, but a spiritual one. It's almost as though they were meant to see something, but they couldn't because of the problems in their heart. I, I told you at about 12 hours that ball will drop. I have three young children. I have not stayed up till midnight in at least eight years. <laughs> I will not be staying up till midnight this evening. But one of the problems that I, ca- I cannot fully celebrate New Year's, as many people do, because I am too weak. I need my, my early baby-like bedtime. Israel was weak in their heart. Israel could not see the goodness of God because they were so fixated on themselves. They had this spiritual sight problem that if we're honest with ourselves, I bet you and I could relate to in some way, shape, or form. Their spiritual sight, Isaiah calls blind and deaf. We would call it depravity. We've been made to look to, to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we so frequently look to ourselves as the thing and the person whom we love most. And this depravity is then often coupled with difficulty. Look at the rest of chapter 42 and verse 22 and 23. Life was hard. They were leaving exile, headed into another exile. And here's what it says in 22. This is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Life wasn't a cakewalk. (laughs) And whether you walk into this room struggling to see God because of this ongoing sin in your life, maybe you walk into this room fearful about the year to come because you have this lingering, just nagging sense that this plundered and looted, this difficulty of whatever you're going through will never cease to leave you. No matter what you bring in, God has come to bring good news. Listen again to verse 1 now, that we fully appreciate the background of this dark, bleak situation. But now, thus says the Lord. You can hear the contrast right away. Against the darkness, there is light. There was plundering. There was looting. There was blindness and deafness. But now, thus says the Lord. This evening, before the ball drops, what's the last 10 seconds of the year include? The last 10 seconds of the year includes that countdown. 10, 9, 8, all the way down. And whenever that countdown starts, it captivates our attention, doesn't it? It's like everyone, no matter what you're doing, if you're awake, unlike me, you will then fixate 
and hope to see that good news, that, that ball drop and light shine and confetti fly. But now, thus says the Lord, something good's about to happen. This is like the countdown to anticipate, the, uh, to captivate our souls. And, and, but now is like this contrasting element we hear throughout the scriptures. See, you and I, by nature and choice, we can't see God as he deserves to be seen, as worthy of our worship. We don't listen to him with the ears of our soul, ready to respond to him as the one who made us. But now the Lord comes without our permission, thank God, without our permission, and he speaks to save. He speaks to open your eyes and my eyes, to behold wondrous things that we would not be able to imagine apart from him. And this pattern is seen all throughout the scriptures. Remember, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, we hear this contrasting element. You and I, we're born dead. Not, not just a, a little bad, a little short of God's standard, but dead in the sins and the trespasses in which we once walked. But God, but God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Do you see that even if you're in church today, it is not because you made yourself a good person. <laughs> that if we are going to have any hope in life and death, it is not because we're a little bit better than the person to your left, to your right, the pew across from you, the pew in front of you. You and I, we're all dead in sin and trespass. But God speaks to save God speaks to redeem the ruined. He speaks to help the helpless. And that's who we are. And so now let's listen to the parade of his activity that induces our praise. Our praise. But now thus says the Lord. Go back to verse 1. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. One after another. New Year's Eve is not my speed. I told you this. New Year's Day, I've gone to a parade or two. New Year's Day parades are a common way to inaugurate the new year, these hopes for the new year. Whether it's the Rose Bowl Parade in California, the Mummers Parade in Philadelphia. Do that once. You don't need to do it again. <laughs> Regardless of whatever parade you go to, one of the things that makes parades beautiful is it's float after float of uh, this beautiful display of activity. Verse 1 and 2 hits us like a parade of praise-inducing action from God. He has created us, the first float of this parade. He has made us out of nothing. When God speaks, the sun shines. You get how powerful he is? But he hasn't just mass-produced humanity. Look at what he says next. I have formed you. That's the language of like a potter with a piece of clay or if you made someone a handmade gift for Christmas. You did so out of love with this idea of there's an intimate relationship but an intimacy that you want to further by saying I formed you or I formed that gift. Just like God says I formed Adam from the dust of the ground. It wasn't an accident. But then what does he say next? He says I've redeemed you. It's this idea of purchasing back. It's like in our sin, we have essentially been stolen from the purpose of our lives, which is God's praise. And the only way we could be bought back is to be paid for a second time. It's like if your house was robbed and the police said, good luck, go to the pawn shop. 
and you really care about that diamond ring that was lost, you'll pay anything for it a second time. God's done that for his people. The redemption price of your sin and my sin was the cost of his precious son's blood, and he would stop at nothing to buy us back. Redeemed, I hope you never gloss over that word again. And then also called by name. It's like when you give someone a Christmas gift, you put their specific name on it. Not just, hey, pick one under the tree and I hope it's for you. God is saying, I have called you specifically. His irresistible grace, opening up the dead eyes in our hearts so that he would woo us to this posture of worship by first showing us the depravity of our sin, the difficulty we can't escape, and then his deliverance in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer in Christ, it's because he's called you by name. And this idea of calling means he's going to keep you. The saints will persevere, not because you're going to white-knuckle it to heaven, but because the sovereign God who made you, if he's saved you, he's not going to let you go. Aren't you glad? You heard this New Year's Day parade? (laughs) And so now let's hear the only command. Notice the ratio of commands of what God has done to what we're invited to do. Five to one. Created, called, formed, redeemed, and verse two, committed to you. And what's the one thing we're to do? Fear not. (laughs) Fear not. Not try harder. Not hope better. Not fix the language. Put a nicer shirt on. It's fear not. And we're going to hear it again in verse 5. And you're going to, if you read the Bible more than like two pages, you're going to read it again. And fear not is not because we don't need to hear that repeated because we are dumb. It's because it's the most recurrent thought in our hearts. If we're honest. How many of you are looking ahead to 2024 with a mix of anticipation and anxiety? What if that job doesn't pan out? What if that relationship tanks? What if all the good plans we had on our calendar go to naught? What if Tuesday, when you return to work, is really like the most terrible day you could ever imagine? See, you and I, we often live in the land of fear, don't we? And fear's favorite time zone, as counselor Ed Welch in Philadelphia says, fear's favorite time zone is the future. Most of us, we act like weathermen who look into the future and assume the worst. (laughs) We assume that God is not going to be acting. And if he is, he's not going to be strong enough to help me in my situation. And so what Isaiah is doing for these people, remember, they're coming out of exile. God, what have you done for me lately? And they're going to be going into another one. They need to be told not to fear because life's about to get hard. And so Isaiah doesn't want them to be surprised by the suffering. Look at verse 2. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Even before they look too far into the future, he wants them to take all that former grace. I've created, called, redeemed, formed, called you. I said like two of those twice. (laughs) I want you to look in the rearview mirror. I want you to see what God has done before you look out the windshield (laughs) and drive into the next season of life with nothing but fear. But I wonder for us, what would change about all those question marks you have in the future if you were to look in the rearview mirror of what God has done in your life? My goodness, God, you've acted in ways that 
I may have been quick to gloss over. God, my goodness, even over the holiday break, you have put me in a family dynamic where I have heard your gospel. I have seen evidence of your love in sacrificial time together. My goodness, God, you have given me the opportunity to hear from you in the word day after day as I just open your Bible and I'm serenaded with these precious promises that tell me you're committed to me even before I'm committed to you. Guys, look in the rearview mirror and count. Take stock of God's grace. And then let's look into the windshield of our lives and drive forward, not in confidence in ourselves, but in our creator. Hear verse 2 again. When, not if, when, not if, you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When, again, not if, but when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. This is scary language. Fires, flames, is exile language. Isaiah, as only a prophet can do, he's looking backwards and forwards all at once. Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Life until Christ returns is hard. We don't got to put on a fake smile just because we're at church. We can ask each other afterwards, how's things going? Well, this in my life is hard, and could you pray for me? Because when we all go through hardship, we need to know that the Lord is with us. The Creator does not kick us to the side. When difficulty hits, God does not depart or default on His promises. The only thing that gives me hope, and I hope it does for you as well, is this promise, I will be with you. This is the great I am, guys. This is the Exodus 3. This is the rescue you out of Egypt. Great I am, the one who made you, the one who formed you, the one who knows the hairs on your head, the days of your life, the days of your life. He is the one who promises to be with you no matter you go through fires or, or flames, rivers or waters. And notice he's not just concerned about the big stuff in your life, but the little stuff. Look again at the passage. As I was walking through this with the other pastors at Metanoia this week, and we noticed that it goes from waters to rivers. That's general to specific. And then it goes from fires to flames. There is nothing that is in your heart that isn't worthy of bringing to God in prayer. You might think, well, God only wants to hear the big stuff in my life. If he's the one who created and formed you, he cares about the little stuff too. He walks with you in the fires and the flames. Unless we be quick to doubt, let's check his track record. In the Old Testament, he was with his people, fire and cloud leading them through the wilderness, temple, tabernacle. And what did we celebrate last weekend? Emmanuel. God with us in the flesh. And what are we longing for? Revelation 21, heaven is heaven because God is there. <laughs> heaven is heaven because we're going to see him face to face. I will be with you until the end of the age is what Jesus said when he left his disciples in Matthew 28. And if he said it and showed it and promises it, we don't have to doubt it. So let's just be honest. Let's be big boy Christians in the sense of saying, I sometimes doubt that God is with me, and fill in the blank situation of your life. I sometimes doubt that God can get me through those waters and those flames. But God, I hear in your promises, I see in your work, and I know that when you return, you will be with us. So now help me live in light of your presence, no matter where we are. Let's remember and rest in God's grace. 
And if we were to do this, I think two very simple things. Look in the rearview mirror this week, and then look into the windshield of your life. So look in the rearview mirror, count up the evidence of God's grace, and then look into your future and imagine God being there with you if you're in Christ. How might life look different? We want to know God's action. And do you remember point two? We want to know who God is, his affection, his love, God's affection. Let's turn to verse three and four. Verse three and four. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. God is reintroducing himself to his people. This past week, you may have shared time with friends and family, some you're close to, some from afar. And for a while, if it was small talk at the very get-go, you had to ask, you know, how's work going? How are the kids doing? It's like a reintroduction. Israel seems to have forgotten how great and good God was. That's what got him into exile and hardship, wasn't it? And so what God is doing here, it's not just small talk, but it's spiritual talk. He's helping them remember what they should never forget. Look at verse 3. He wants them to know, I am great and good. I am the Lord your God. That's Yahweh in the Old Testament. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then the Holy One of Israel. Lest you think of God too lowly, this is the sinless, the perfect one. The one who is prophesied and eventually would come Christ Jesus, the Messiah, who is unlike every single person in this room in the sense that he never sinned. And therefore, he's the only one who qualifies to be our substitute to do what we have failed to do which we have been designed to know, love, and worship God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we haven't. We have fallen short in sin, but Jesus never has. And so now as the Holy One of Israel, he can be our perfect sacrificial offering. And then after that, your Savior, the one who can rescue you. And your God and your Savior, not because you and I picked him, but he picked us. (laughs) He has to say it twice, lest we get so high up on our hobby horses of pride, but instead he is great and he is good. I give. Egypt is your ransom. That's the payment for your redemption. And then in verse 4, he speaks in the future, I will give men in exchange for you. If God is so good to draw his people out of Egypt in the past, he's promising no matter what exile you find yourself in, I will still be working for your good and your deliverance. This sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? (laughs) Like, let's be honest. This is 2023. Like, God would do something good and great even if I have done nothing but bad and wrong? What would drive God to do something like this? Well, it's not obligation. It's affection beyond what we could measure. This past Christmas was indeed, each and every one seems to get better when you have kids. (laughs) This past Christmas was wonderful. I got to gather with my in-laws, and collectively, there are six grandchildren for my uh, in-laws under the age of seven. And so you can imagine getting all this energy and, and hyperactivity together in and of itself is, a, is quite the feat. But then when we gathered and I looked at the uh, mass amount of presence in the room, I saw that there are Paw Patrol, there's Harry Potter, there's soccer jerseys, there's books. And I'm thinking, Gigi and Poppy, they are respectable, wise adults. 
who have worked hard for their money, wisely saved it. Why would they spend it on cartoon stuff? Why would they go out and lavish these children with these gifts that are only fit for those kids? It wasn't obligation. It was affection. It's the kind of giving that only makes sense if it's motivated by loving. The gospel is even greater than that. The good news of Jesus Christ says, guys, we don't deserve to be children of God. But he comes in to lavish us with gifts, not out of obligation, but affection. And the next few verses, the next few words in chapter 4, or chapter verse 4, are the most overlooked words, I think, in all the Bible. The words you're about to hear should change you. They should melt your heart. They should help you see the love of God in order to live for the glory of God. Listen to how, listen to what God's attitude is towards even you and I as awful sinners by nature and choice who by faith in Christ can be adopted as sons and daughters. Listen to what his disposition is. It's not disappointment. It's precious, honored, and loved. Precious, honored, and loved. Have you ever heard that from someone else? Have you ever longed to hear that from someone else? Are you searching for that kind of love, that valuation, that validation in your job, in a relationship, and somewhere else? What if you were to receive this from the God who made you? See, Isaiah speaks in what we would call the perfect tense. It's precious, honored, and loved. It means you are now, and God will always view you that way if you're in Christ. This is something that no amount of shame can silence in our hearts. That if you are a believer in him who has washed you clean, you now stand and ready to receive this wonderful promise of precious, honored, and loved. And this is only good news indeed. Remember, if you know you're not perfect. See, we can read this and skim past it if you think, well, I got my stuff together. <laughs> like, I'm a little bit better than the guy on the news I read about doing all that horrible stuff. But if we're honest about our needs, precious and honored and loved speaks to the deepest core doubt in all of our hearts. If I'm really known, will I also be really loved? And God really knows you. And he sent his son to live and die for you. And now he says, when I view you, I view you as a child of mine. A sinner become a son or a daughter. Precious, honored, and loved. Hear that for those who struggle with shame. I know there's someone in here. Precious, honored, and loved for those who feel like, you know, I got more Christmas sweaters in my closet or more skeletons in my closet than Christmas sweaters. Precious, honored, and loved for those who go to work on Tuesday and your boss gives you those harsh, ridiculing words that you've had a nice break from for the last two weeks, but you know are coming to you. Precious, honored, and loved for those who struggle with that doubt, Satan's accusatory taunts saying, no, 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 you have sinned your way past God's grace. Remember, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us, as Richard Sibb says. So precious, honored, and loved is an identity that he puts upon you regardless of the activity that comes out of us. But it's all grounded upon the activity of Christ Jesus. This feels good, too good to be true. And yet this is the good news of the gospel, guys. 
God's love is not transactional with us. It's not conditional. That's how we view love, don't we? I do for you, you do for me. It's like a back and forth, who's keeping score? But biblical counselor David Pallison in Philadelphia, he says God's love is contra-conditional. It's contra-conditional. It's against all odds. It's against what we have done and contributed. We have brought nothing but sin and suffering. He brings all of salvation. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but God loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Guys, this is the good news of, of Christ's love. So the next time you doubt, does God love me? Am I still precious, honored, and loved? Look to the cross. Because God showed his love for us, and that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. And when you doubt, will God's love continue to hold me? Look to the empty tomb, <laughs> where Jesus rose after he put death to death. And now God's love is not just soft, but it's strong. It's the kind of love that says, I will never leave nor forsake you, and I've proven it by defeating even your greatest fear, death itself. What has God done? He's rescued, redeemed, called, created, formed. What is God like? He sees you as precious, honored, and loved. And what does God give? He finally gives assurance. We go from affection, we go to action, affection, and finally, assurance what we all need here on the way out. Verse 5 to 7. He says, fear not, Isaiah does to these people. Fear not. The only things that seem fitting after we've heard about strength and the sympathy of God. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. It, God is saying, I will do nothing. I will stop at nothing to bring people home. You may have traveled this week. If you did, probably experience that joy of finally getting home after you did travel. What God is putting before his people, his people who are nomadic wanderers in foreign captivity for a long time, is putting before them the promise of home. I, I don't know if you've ever been on a long business trip, and no matter how nice the hotel might be, it's never compares with being at home, does it? That soft pillow, that home cooking, God is saying, there is a future that I have for my people. And it won't be found even here on earth, but it'll be found in heaven. And so he wants us to set our eyes so far into the future that we live differently in the present. That we live almost like a split-screen reality. That the hope of heaven pulls us towards the next grace-motivated step of obedience. Not because we have to, but because we trust that God is doing something within us for our good and his glory. And so he says, I will bring, I will gather. And it, this is the language of gathering and bringing, amassing. Like my kids on Christmas morning, they gathered all their Christmas gifts under the tree in one little pile. They knew where they were. God is gathering his people right now. Isn't that incredible to think about? Like when you leave this room, you have the opportunity to participate in God's bringing in of more lost souls. Like our God is so good that here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the world from where Jesus was born, and we are praising, praising that same Savior because he sent someone to speak the good news to you. And now he's sending you out to speak the good news to others. See, this is how the fruitful God uses faithful speakers and that the uh, evangelism of man and the sovereignty of God become these eternal allies. And so now you get to leave here not fearing what you might be told, 
not fearing what might happen if you live as a believer at your job in 2023. That's scary. If you lay down your time, your money, your energy, your effort for the kingdom of God, not fearing what that might lose you, but what it, considering what it might gain you. See, look at how verse 7 ends. God says in verse 6, before we get there, I say to the north, give up. To the south, do not withhold. North, south, east, and west. That means anywhere, everywhere. I'm getting my kids home. <laughs> I'm not stopping at nothing. But then here's why he's doing this. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What's your resolution for 2024? What's your greatest goal for 2024? I know many of us have goals. We only need one. Verse 7 is it. We've been made for the glory of God. We've been made to give God praise. And that sounds like behavior modification until you remember all that God has done for you. See, this is really grace-motivated obedience. When you realize that Jesus has come to live the life you failed, to die the death that you deserve, to rise to offer you a new hope, a new eternity, that one day you're going to be gathered into the new heavens and new earth where there is no more sin, sorrow, and suffering. That's the home, guys. No little kingdom of comfort here will satisfy, no matter how good it might be. The home we long for is freedom from sin, sorrow, and suffering. No more COVID, no more cancer, no more funerals, no more hospitals, no more arguments, no more anxieties, none of that. And all the absence of our pain and the fullness of our praise because we're going to see him and be made like him. And when that grace grips your heart, the only thing you'll want to live for is the glory of his name. It's not a have to, it's a get to. It's not a have to, it's a get to go to your job and steward his grace by being a faithful employee. It's not a have to, but it's a get to by raising your children to know and love the Lord. It's not a have to, but it's a get to to lay down your comfort. And trust me, this week with an unusual schedule, I have been more convicted than ever about my preference. Where do our little glories need to die so that the glory of God can live? This is a hope-inducing and humbling-inducing passage all at once. And lest it leave us in darkness, I want to leave us in bright light. Turn with me to the New Testament. John chapter 8, verse 12. I told you tonight, 32,000 LEDs are going to light up Times Square. In the first century, the Lamb of God became the light of the world when he took on flesh. And he is the one we look to now amidst the darkness of our depravity and difficulty. Look at John chapter 8, verse 12. As they reenacted one of the Old Testament ceremonies, Jesus said to the Jew and Gentile crowd, he said, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In 2024, we look to the Christ who did come 700 years after Isaiah 43 was written. 
And we look now in anticipation of his return to the Christ who will return and the Christ who now lights up our path, so to say, and helps us walk through the fear-inducing realities and the shame-inducing failures of our lives because he is the light of the world. He is the one who forgives your dark sin past. He is the one who promises this bright eternal future and only by faith in him can these promises be ours. So my last question is, have you given God your sin and received his forgiveness? I'm not asking if you've gone to church your entire life, never missed a Sunday. I'm asking, is this the God that you understand is the one who created you, formed you, made you, and you have transgressed in not loving him or loving others? But now through Christ, you receive his forgiveness. And if this is the God that you love, will you walk by the Spirit this week? The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is bringing new life to our mortal bodies right now and tomorrow. Will you respond to his invitation to remember his action, remember his affection, and live in light of his assurance? Have no fear as we enter the new year. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we will respond with two songs of praise. Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together. Thank you so much for the good news of your gospel in Christ Jesus. We acknowledge that we are blind and deaf by nature and choice, spiritually speaking, but you have come to bring about the light of the world in Christ Jesus. Help us see him as he deserves to be seen. Help us worship him as only he deserves to be worshipped. And then from that posture of receiving every good and perfect gift in him, let us be willing and desirous to live for the glory of your great name. We ask that you would be lifted up in this church in every place. It's in your name we pray. Amen.